This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Well, welcome to The Savage Nation podcast, the new edition for 1121, 1121, the new podcast. As we closed out the radio show yesterday i said radio revolutionized america and thank you and i said that podcasts are the new evolution of politics news views and reviews and i hope that's true well guess what did you see the news pence has said no to the republicans who want to upend the biden electoral win listen to, let me repeat that again vice president pence late thursday went before a federal judge to dismiss an attempt by Rep. Gohmert, R. Texas, and other Republicans to give Pence new powers in a new way that would enable him to overturn Joe Biden's electoral win. So he went against other Republicans and said, stop it already. Now, the electoral tally is to be certified by Congress next Wednesday. Normally, it's a ceremonial thing. But with President Donald Trump and his campaign standing by assertions that voter fraud resulted in Trump's loss, more than 100 Republican House members are expected to challenge the perfunctory approval of the Electoral College results. Are you listening to this? Now, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has actively discouraged lawmakers from participating in a long-shot effort to overturn the Electoral College vote. And Pence said, don't try it. Pence wants a judge to throw out the Republican legislators bid to throw out the Biden electoral win. This is shocking news, really, when you think about it. And that's the beginning of the new year. Here we are. Fireworks already. Fireworks to begin the new year. As the world begins ushering in a lockdown new year, what's going on in China? Crowds are thronging Wuhan to celebrate. Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? How is it that Wuhan is over the COVID epidemic while we're dying from it here and in England and everywhere else? I, I touched on this yesterday on the radio show. What did the Chinese do here? How are they over it? Can anyone answer that question? Do they have some secret here that we don't know? They're over it and we're just dying from it here? Crowds throng Wuhan where a pandemic began to celebrate the new year. That was last night. How was that even possible? Well, it's true they're wearing masks uh, over there in China on Thursday evening and a light show. But how are they over it? Well, the Chinese are saying they control the epidemic very well by locking down. I don't believe that. China has been accused of covering up the outbreak and allowed the virus to spread internationally. Do you believe that? Huh? Beijing has also put out the big lie 
that COVID originated in Wuhan. They had they tried to say it originated in Italy. You remember who went along with that? It was uh, De Blasio, the communist. How's that, Jim? So the city of Wuhan, where it began, locked down from January to April. And according to the fake Chinese news, only 4,000 people died. I don't believe a word of it. So there you go. So I looked into this. And I'd like to now go into the story of ethnicity and COVID here in America to give you a little more insight that no one else has. Okay? So let's hold on. I'm getting the data now. I'm going into my files right now. And here it is. I have a whole file that I put together because I'm very interested, intrigued on ethnicity and the disease. Because we keep hearing that here in America, uh, African Americans are inordinately affected by it. Hispanics are disproportionately affected by it. Well, it's true, but what do you mean by disproportionately? What, is someone giving it to them in a blanket on a pony? No, that's not how it's happening. So I looked into the death rates amongst white Americans, Asian Americans, Latino Americans, Pacific Islander Americans, black Americans, indigenous Americans. And the, the, the date is very interesting. The highest death rate is amongst Native Americans, 133 deaths per 100,000. The lowest death rate for COVID is amongst Asian Americans, 51 deaths per 100,000. Now, let's look at that for a minute. Okay. Native Americans or indigenous Americans have a death rate of 133 per 100,000. Asian Americans have the lowest rate of 51 deaths per 100,000. So how is that possible? 2.6 times as high as the death rate for Asians who have the lowest actual rates. Now, why is that? What is there, some secret going on here? Why would Asian Americans have a lower death rate from COVID-19? What are they doing right? Or put it another way, what what are indigenous Americans doing wrong? The answer is neither of them are doing anything right or wrong, or is it all that, or is it all genetic? We don't have a a definitive answer for this, but something is going on here, okay? Nationwide, Asian Americans have experienced 3.5% of all deaths of all known races, while they represent 5.6% of the population. That's very interesting. Why are Asian Americans enjoying, if you want to put it that way, such a low death rate, an actual mortality rate? It's a very interesting question. And on the other side, the the story is different. There's something going on on the other side. Indigenous Americans, 133 deaths per 100,000. Black Americans, uh, 123 deaths per 100,000. White Americans, 75 deaths per 100,000. So I want to look into this just slightly from the point of view of the underlying conditions. Everyone's interested in this. We keep hearing, oh, they had an underlying condition. I instinctually said if I was still working in science, what I would look at is why are people with diabetes and cardiovascular disease dying at a higher rate or even getting the disease at a higher rate of uh, of COVID-19? Why is the disease severity and the outcome worse in people who have diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Well, Potential links between pathogenicity or the illness between COVID-19 and diabetes include 
effects on glucose homeostasis, inflammation, altered immune status, and activation of the RAAS system, the renin renin angiotensin aldosterone system. What does that mean to the average person? During the COVID-19 pandemic, tight control of glucose levels and prevention of diabetes complications has become very crucial in patients with diabetes to keep susceptibility low and to prevent severe courses of COVID-19. Why is that? I'm also looking at drugs that people might be taking to treat these illnesses. So scientists have started to look at this, which is pharmacological agents that are used to treat diabetes, which affect glucose. Does insulin itself affect it? Should people stop taking these medications because it increases their risk of COVID-19? There's no answer yet. Pharmacological agents under investigation for the treatment of COVID-19 can affect glucose metabolism, particularly in patients with diabetes. And so frequent blood glucose monitoring and personalized adjustment of medications are absolutely required. But definitively, nobody knows whether taking these agents, these drugs for these diseases, is actually increasing your risk of the disease and your risk of dying. But we do know this. Drugs used in the clinical care of patients with COVID-19, such as corticosteroids or antiviral agents, can actually contribute to worsening hyperglycemia. So there's the link right there. And I want you to ask your doctor if you have diabetes or if you have an underlying heart condition, what drugs he has or she has put you on, and does it increase the risk of complications and damage the vital organs in patients who also have COVID-19, because I think that they do, and I think we have to look at that in much more detail. Again, to summarize, both the ethnicity or race of people and what medications people are taking for their diabetes or heart disease or underlying conditions should be looked at very, very carefully with regard to the deaths from COVID-19. This is an exclusive feature for the first podcast of the first new year on the Savage Nation podcast. Michael Savage, a host like no other. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, let's see the horrible news of the day out there. Where shall we begin? What site do you want me to begin with, Jim? Drudge, Savage Nation, Washington Times, Newsmax, New York Post. USA Today, Fox News, AP, Breitbart, Jerusalem Post. I'll start with Breitbart. Lockdown forever. UK government doctor says vaccine won't end social distancing. I don't believe this. Forever? In a society? Sadiq Khan lights up London sky with Black Lives Matter fireworks on New Year's Eve. Isn't that wonderful? How we've gone from the United Kingdom to the disunited kingdom under this communist Muslim 
Sadiq Khan, that little petty dictator. Oh, by the way, de Blasio danced in Times Square last night while keeping New Yorkers locked out. Isn't that wonderful what communists do? I, I, just, I can't even read anymore. It's January 1. Protesters attack Minneapolis police. Mitch McConnell says $2,000 checks are socialism for the rich. Oh, boy. That should win him a lot of friends and influence people. Unbelievable. 2020's big winners, billionaires. I'm sure everyone saw that. We all know that some got richer than ever in history. And the biggest winners are your friends, Mark Zuckerface, Jeff uh, Bozos, and Chairman Z of uh, Communist China. The coronavirus pandemic took nearly 2 million lives worldwide and caused unprecedented economic devastation this year. But 2020 has had at least three big winners because of the pandemic. The world's billionaires, Silicon Valley's tech lords, and communist China where the virus originated. Well, you can read the rest if you want to really agitate yourself, January 1. Luckily, most of us didn't celebrate New Year's Eve. I mean, would you have a couple of drinks? Why? Where is it written you have to get drunk on New Year's Eve and feel like on, on, on January 1? I know you did, Jim. I could see how you look. Jesus, put on, put on something other than a dirty undershirt for me. I got to look at you. <laughs> Come on. I, I got dressed up. You can just see I'm wearing a nice blazer here. Come on. Okay. New York Post headlines January 1. Let's see what they're babbling about. Fauci says mandatory COVID-19 vaccines are possible for travel and school. Isn't that nice what the little bastard is saying? That little bastard is saying it's possible that mandatory vaccines will be required for travel and school, that little pharmaceutical bastard. Protesters vandalize St. Patrick's Cathedral early New Year's Day. Okay? Me? Shoot them on sight. You vandalize a statue or a church, you get shot on sight. This keeps up there's going to be vigilantism. Because if the police have been deballed, we the people have to take over. Now, I'm not calling for violence, but I've had enough of this. 150 protesters, I guess mostly peaceful protesters, whenever they're communists or Black Lives Matter uh, terrorists, they're, they're mostly peaceful. If they're Proud Boys or conservatives waving a flag, they're called violent right-wingers. 51st Street, 5th Avenue, 1.30 a.m., a group of 150 vermin marred the facade of the great St. Patrick's Cathedral with graffiti. Isn't that, you know, this is the end of civilization. Police could not confirm the group involved in the protest. They were affiliated, according to some, with Black Trans Lives Matter and posted a video of them chanting, God is non-binary. I'll give them a non-binary. Can anyone explain to this podcaster, Michael Savage, why so many people who are, let us say, not uh, heterosexual, not all, but why are so many trans and lesbians so anti-American. Can anyone please explain it to me? Let them try it in Iran, see what happens. They'll throw them off a building. Hold them up with a crane and drop them from 10... What are they... Liberalism is a mental disorder. Diversity is perversity. I think someone wrote that years ago. I guess so. Can't even say it anymore. Just thinking out loud, Jim. Well, there's, there's some of the headlines. I mean, you want me to continue on this January 1? You didn't have enough? Well, let's news to fix news network. Georgia Democratic Senate candidates level widely misleading claim against Republican in closing days. I don't even want to read it. They're filthy, dirty, degenerate communists, the Democrats. If they win, the country's finished.
taken down by cops. Mom allegedly assaulted kids over masks. Police hit her with stun gun. I can't read it. That sounds like a stoner. Business owners blast Cuomo for opening football stadiums but not restaurants amid COVID lockdowns. Why does Cuomo look like a nasty, mean thug with a twisted face to me? Gavin Newsom recall effort gains momentum. Tam says California's in dire straits. Okay. University releases annual banished words, Jim. Let me see what. Oh, I bet I. Oh, my God. Which university was this? The University of Trans Studies? Superior, Lake Superior State University. That's a top university. That's a top of the heap one. Let's see. On Thursday, Lake Superior State University, I guess you could major in trans studies, untrans studies, unbinary studies, anti, anti-binary studies in Michigan, released its annual banished words list, which includes 10 words that it wants banned in 2021 for overuse, misuse, or uselessness. Okay. Well, where is the list already? Uh, Karen, where are they? Most of the phrases on the final list are related to the pandemic, including social distancing. We're all in this together in an abundance of caution in these uncertain times, pivot and unprecedented. Okay. The university also wanted to banish the term Karen, which began as an anti-racist critique of the behavior of white women in response to black and brown people. But it has now been turned into a misogynist umbrella term for critiquing the perceived over-emotional behavior of women. Okay. I don't even understand this. Do you understand any of this? This great university up there in Lake Superior State University also banished SUS, S-U-S, which is short for suspicious and commonly used in the video game, Among Us, and, quote, I know, right? Because it's reiterating something. I need a cup of coffee. I can't even follow this. Are these people mentally ill? Oh, yes. LSSU has been releasing its annual banished words list since 1976 as a way to, quote, uphold, protect, and support excellence in language by encouraging avoidance of words in terms that are overworked, redundant, oxymoronic, cliched, illogical, nonsensical, and otherwise ineffective, baffling, or irritating. The announcement said from LSSU, all I can say is this. Anyone who sends their child to Lake Superior State University and pays for it should call 911 immediately and uh, see if they can buy a straitjacket online. I right. need to go to my next hometown website for the next puke job. San Francisco is the next uh, website. Questions linger over Newsom Palo through French Laundry Party. Well, what do I care? Up to half of some California hospital workers refusing to take COVID vaccine. Well, get little uh, the pharmacist's assistant. He can jab them himself. Maybe Fauci can come out by private jet and force people down onto a stretcher and tie them down and vaccinate them and say it's for their own good. Stolen car driven by parolee kills two women in San Francisco. Parolee. Okay. Cliff House sign is removed on New Year's Eve. I don't care. I really don't care about the Cliff House. Most people who care about it were never there. I went there overpriced. Drinks cost too much and they were watered down. I was there once 20 years ago. Well, here's the big one. Uh, Bay Area consumers are favoring touch-free transactions. Does that include the massage parlors that are left open, Jim? I mean, the governor has left open, open massage parlors and closed churches. Okay. All right. So the, the reason is because of COVID-19. 
but they want touch-free transactions. So how do you do a touch-free massage? What do you do? Like psychically, ooh, I'm massaging you. We're having a final ending here, a, a happy ending, but we're not touching you. San Francisco extends stay-at-home order and 10-day travel quarantine indefinitely. Indefinitely. Isn't that great? Okay. I don't know. I can't do this. Restaurant closed after 70 years. 2020 soar, an unprecedented spike in homicides. Can we look at the ethnicity of that or the spike in homicides? Were they Hasidic rabbis who went up in homicidal behavior? No. Priests? No. Nuns? No. Let's leave it at that. SF small businesses grapple with increase in burglaries. Really? So they close them down and they don't patrol the neighborhoods. Okay, these SF neighborhoods had the highest turnout for Trump. Interestingly enough, the neighborhood with the highest African-American population had the highest turnout for Trump. They buried that. I had to look into the actual, the Excelsior district. Why did so many African-Americans vote for Trump? Oh, I see. They're not as smart as white liberals. Sorry. Popular NorCal Casino defends 6,000-person indoor party. <laughs> I guess they, they have some secret cure from the reservation there, right? Fauci urges calm as mutated UK COVID strain found in California. Okay. He's going to urge calm? Federal judge in Iowa ridicules Trump's pardons. Yeah, tell us about Obama's pardons. There were 10 times as many as Trump, but you wouldn't understand that by reading this left-wing rag. Not even a rag anymore. They don't print it. It's digital. You can't even use it for toilet paper, for your parrot cage. All right, folks. One more visit here. All right, I'll go to the Drudge Report and see what my old friend Matt is doing. Once a model, California now struggles with damn COVID. Uh, more people getting sick without underlying conditions and dying. We're coughing, sneezing, vomiting. Visibly ill people aren't kept off planes. Well, it was the same during the AIDS epidemic. I remember flying first class once to Hawaii. There was a guy dying next, I swear, in the next row. He was throwing up in a bucket. He had AIDS. He had a, an attendant with him. I saw it. It was like Kaposi sarcoma, vomiting. I went to the attendant. I said, look, you got to get this guy off this plane. He said, well, she said, there's nothing we could do. We're 35,000 feet. And it's, it's illegal for me to even ask him to move him anywhere away from people. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't the flying is terrific. I always loved bathrooms and airplanes. Didn't you, Jim? They're always, always at the top of the heap. Uh, let's see what's uh, world's richest men add billions to fortunes. We saw that. Stocks and 2020 at record high. I have no stocks, Jim. Do you? No. USA sees indications of Iranian attack in Mideast. Aircraft carrier moved out of region. Rouhani threatens Trump. What's going to throw a pita bread at him? ISIS comeback. Bus massacre sparks fears. The vermin are back. Major brawl after armed forces bowl. Immigrants heading back to Mexico. Can't let that happen. There go some Democrat voters. Well, they voted already. Unless they're coming from Georgia, they won't stop them. I mean, unless they're leaving Georgia back to Mexico, then no one's going to stop them. Trump Hotel looks to cash in on Biden inauguration. Wouldn't you if you owned a hotel? Well, there's nothing here. 
world uses a lockdown. New Year, blah, blah, blah. I don't see much on this. Uh, Trump Hotel looks to cash in. 140, 140 Republicans to protest Joe in. Meh, nothing here. Activist and his foundation exaggerated tales of animal abuse, vets and rescuers say. Do dogs really make us happier? Oh, not when you have to clean up their shit. No. Uh, not when you step in dog crap. No, they don't make us happier. Caribbean island residents told to evacuate as dormant volcanoes come back to life. That's supposed to threaten me. Here, last one. Anti-dementia pill. Isn't it called the Democrat Party USA? First ever augmented reality 3D eye socket surgery. I don't even understand the headline. Well, those are some of the headlines of the day on the uh, Savage Nation. The only, I mean, there's many other sites we could look at together. I've saved you the trouble today. Newsmax, defying Trump, Senate presses ahead to override his veto. I don't even understand the headline. Can you understand headlines like that, Jim? I'm in the business. Why did they have to write twisted headlines? Wait, let me see if I can de deconstruct this for the average person. Here's Newsmax, which is pretty straightforward. Newsmax. It's like a Big Mac for the news. Newsmax. Defying Trump. Senate presses ahead to override his veto. I'm sorry, I don't understand it. President Donald Trump's fellow Republicans in the U.S. Senate are expected to take steps toward overriding his veto of a major defense bill in a rare New Year's Day session on Friday and hand them his first major rebuke 20 days before he leaves office. Overriding his veto. Oh, they want to pass the boondoggle. I'm sorry. Trump wanted to stop it to cut out the pork. I get it. But the, the gullet, Mitch McConnell with the thing hanging from the chin down to his pectoral muscles, the gobbler, he wants to pass the pork. That sounds dirty, Jim. Pass the pork. Sorry, I didn't mean to pass the pork. Trump hails unprecedented vaccine effort in a year-end speech. Did he take it yet? I mean, he, he, I'm glad that it is unprecedented vaccine effort. But has the president taken the shot yet? No. Okay, well. California hospitals at brink of catastrophe, 25,000 dead. I'm sorry to tell you, most of them are coming over the border. I looked at the data. The Mexican government is encouraging their citizens to cross the border into San Diego County and flood the gringo hospitals because we're stupid and we treat them. But no one will say that. Can't say that. Take a look at the major clusters. Illegal immigrant communities. You don't even hear the word illegal anymore, do you? Undocumented community. You don't even hear undocumented anymore, right? You don't even hear the word immigrant community anymore. It's all one and the same. We're all one happy family of, of people now. Okay, my friends, isn't that enough for the day? I think it's enough for the day. Many immigrants are wary of Biden. What? Wait, I got to read that story. Sorry. Immigrants wary of Biden? I thought they loved the. Uh, the basket case. Immigrants in the U.S. both hopeful and wary of Biden. Oh, it's hopeful and wary. I see. Aha. Uh -huh. He's, he's going to restart DACA. Okay, that's what we need. I see. They don't. Oh, she said DACA is not enough. Eight million illegal aliens isn't enough for them. She said it kind of puts this little umbrella over a little population of millions. I see. Aha. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. I can't even read this. This keeps up there's going to be a civil war, and I didn't say that. Many people are saying it. If this putz, if this moron, Biden, 
and that dark machine from San Francisco run by the most evil people in the country opens our borders and floods America with illegal aliens when there's so many people hurting economically. During a COVID epidemic, there's going to be a revolution in the country. Not, there's not going to be a civil war. There'll be a revolution. I don't think they can do it. But let me read one more. Richard Avila, a 66-year-old Mexican born, uh, was deported from the U.S. after years of drug addiction and stints in prison. They shouldn't have deported him. That makes him a model citizen to Joe Biden. Come on, Jim. Drug addiction and stints in prison. Born in Mexico, snuck in. That is a model Democrat voter. He said of the decision by the same government he fought for in Vietnam, you've served your usefulness and we don't need you anymore so you can be deported. He now lives in Tijuana after repeated attempts to return to the U.S. for him. Every day in Mexico was a struggle. That's my problem. If they let more of them in, every day in America is going to be a bigger struggle. He sees Biden as empathetic and open-minded on immigration and hopes that if he can find a solution for DACA, it would allow people like him who have been deported to make the case for returning. So DACA is just the first step, Jim. See, they they don't care about DACA. That's the first nine million. Now they want the floodgates opened up. So the drug-addicted criminal who snuck in from Tijuana says, I do feel very optimistic about this new administration coming in, he said. I say borders, language, culture, immigrants, and epidemics. This is Michael Savage signing off on the news, views, and reviews on January 1st. I'll be back in a minute. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. So what I'm going to do today on this podcast is I'm going to go back in time, okay? It's called The Savage Nation, Saving America from the Liberal Assault on Our Borders, Language, and Culture. That sounds familiar to you, right? Well, it is very familiar now. But when this book was published in 2002, it was called The Savage Nation. It was the number one book on the New York Times list for many, many weeks. So you're saying, well, why are you, why are you reading it? I'm reading it for three reasons. One, to introduce myself, and two, to reintroduce myself, and three, to educate those who never heard of me. So let's begin at the beginning. This is the famous book, which shows a picture of me wearing sunglasses with a frame of the Golden Gate Bridge above me, with a glint uh, of the sun in my eye. It's a glint of the flash. I have a gray scarf on. It's a collector's item. And here's how the cover begins. If you're tired of being attacked in school whenever you celebrate the achievements of America, if you're weary of being trampled on whenever you speak in favor of morality, if as a Boy Scout you become a pariah while the perverts have become the victims, you've come to the right place. So the jacket copy goes on to say, these are the candid words of Michael Savage. Remember, this is in 2002. The son of immigrants whose love for America and trenchant insights into the leftist propaganda that threatens our way of life have made him a giant in talk radio. In this book, written in his muscular, electrifying style, Savage warns that our country is losing its identity, becoming a victim of political correctness, unmonitored immigration, and socialistic ideals. Savage says, when it comes to our culture, we're being told by liberals to let the illegal invaders, as as well as the legal newcomers, redefine and shape our culture into their image. Wake up, America. Our borders, language, and culture are being threatened, and it's up to us as principled patriotic citizens to defend and protect the freedoms we cherish. 
If the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, declares Savage, then only a more savage nation will enjoy these liberties. Now remember, this was published in 2002. And I was warming up in this hard-hitting, pull-no-punches book about American politics and culture. And it was this independent thinking that made me a gigantic star in talk radio. Right now, I'm a gigantic star on podcasting, about to get bigger with your help. And what I'd like you to do is share the link to this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Ten friends, that's all I need. If every listener shared this with ten friends, not just this podcast, but all of them, and there's several hundred episodes that you could look into already in the podcast library. So let me look at some of the chapter titles in this book, The Savage Nation. The first one was A Little History About Me, From the Bronx to Broadcasting. Chapter 2, Diversity is Perversity, Still True. Chapter 3, America from the Melting Pot to the Chamber Pot, Still True. Chapter 4, Rats versus Eagles, Still True. Chapter 5, Christophobia in Praise of Christianity, Still True. Chapter 6, Trickle-Down Immorality, More True Than Ever. Chapter 7, Immigrants and Epidemics. I was writing about tuberculosis. I would like you to understand that right now with the COVID-19 epidemic, the ER rooms, the IU units are over, overflowing, as we are being told by the socialist vermin who run our country and run our states. Unfortunately, they're not telling you what the predominant number of people are, where they come from. The predominant number of people in these IUs, of course, consist of old people. We know that but also immigrants. If you look at the San Diego County IUs, they're flooded with Mexicans because the Mexican government is sending them over the border. So we, the morons, flood our IUs and take care of third worlders. Ask Governor Newsom to tell you about that. I doubt you'll get a straight answer. Chapter eight of this book is Dancing on the Cultural Abyss, Red Diaper Doper Babies Rule. Chapter nine is Crimes of the Democrats. So I'm not going to read the whole book to you, obviously. I could do that and it would be as, as important as you uh, can imagine because some of it's more relevant today than it was at the time it was written in 2002. But I will, at, as time goes on, dip into this book to tell you stories that may enlighten some of you who are sitting on the fence as to where this country is and where it should go. So let me begin with something that I think is very personal, which is from the Bronx to broadcasting. And because I want to tell you my story before I tell you the story of the Savage Nation, because if you think I'm just another immigrant basher, think again. I'm Michael Savage, me. I'm the son of an immigrant. I was born in New York City in an immigrant home. We had a little apartment in the Bronx. Uh, I think it had one bedroom. Three of us slept in it, or four. And my father worked his way up as an immigrant from selling things in the street on a push cart to having his own store. He was never wealthy but he was never poor. He always managed to support our family. My mother never worked. That's the way it was. She worked to keep the family together. They were called homemakers then. My father didn't want her to work, and I don't think she wanted to, but she kept that apartment clean and neat. That place was immaculate. You came in there any time of the day or night, and that woman would cook three meals for anybody. She always was ready. Well, woman, of course, at the time, my mother at the time was still alive, and uh, even to this day, in that little apartment she lived in in Florida before she went into the nursing home, she was still able to prepare a six-course meal if you gave a 10 minutes advance notice. That was the background I came from. It was a very straight household, you know, a tough kind of upbringing, 
Life was hard in many ways, but I never missed a meal. Besides, it gave me a work ethic and values and a love for America that nobody's ever been able to take away from me. Nobody. I remember how education was so important to my father. He himself, not educated. He didn't have the opportunity. He only went to a high school. Being the man-child in the promised land, I knew that the burden of my family's dreams fell on my shoulders. They felt very strongly that I should do well in school. As an immigrant son, I don't have to tell you how hard that pressure can be, since I was not a very good student. I had to struggle to get good grades. I was an average student. And the reason is because my mind did not focus on memorizing things. I was not that kind of person. I was a dreamer, a thinker, a philosopher. But I didn't know any of that at that time. I just thought I was stupid. Back then, the kids who could memorize were considered the bright kids. But really, they never they didn't turn out to be that bright. They're like the smart idiots who wound up at Harvard Law School. They're like the idiots who are broadcast news network morons. The Jake Tapper idiots. The Wolf Blitzer idiots. The liberal fools who can remember every law book they ever read, but they don't know their ass from their elbow. They don't know what they're talking about, where they've, or where they've dragged the nation and they could care less. Anyway, as I was about to enter high school, I remember my father uh, and I were driving past the high school where I was going to go start the next year. Remember, I was not in high school. It was about the ninth grade. I was in mid-school, and we were looking up at Jamaica High School. It was a cold, miserable East Coast night, the kind where it was already dark at 4 o'clock. I remember looking at the cupola of the high school and then saying to myself, man, I wish I could get all A's when I go there, but I know I can't because I just can't. I know I can't. If I only had a magic pencil that could skip across the tests and check the right boxes, it would make my parents so proud of me. That's what I was thinking in that car. Could you believe this? Now, today, of course, the teachers' unions have just about eliminated any testing. They favor outcome-based learning so morons can do as well as the geniuses, which has more to do with the feelings of a student than with their grasp of knowledge. And of course, you have to advance people who look a certain way at the expense of those who think a certain way. Today, of course, the teachers' union uh, that we know, the unions, have just about eliminated testing, as I told you. Well, later on in high school, I came home with jazz music one day. I heard someone playing it. I don't know how. There were only records. I had become infatuated with jazz. I came home with uh, Cannonball Adderley's This Here, and my father went crazy. He said to me, what are you listening to that junky music for? It'll warp your mind. I said, well, what do you want me to listen to? That was just the way fathers and sons were in those days, I suppose. Today, if a kid brought home a record from a foreign nation, the father would have to be like Mr. Rogers. Oh, son, that's just so sensitive of you. How multicultural of you, son. Have you learned much about their culture? Well, let's study it together, son. That's so wonderful. We didn't have room for cute in my life. Things were tough every day of our lives. We made the best of it. Frankly, that's why I'm driven the way I am. I was raised on neglect, anger, and hate. I was raised the old-fashioned way. Today, he raised the child with, oh, look at that, dear. He smeared his feces on the wall. That's modern art. Well, what are you going to produce? A journalist? You might produce a lawyer. I mean, that's about all you can make out of a kid like that. That's if he doesn't wind up with a needle in his arm and an earring on his you-know-what. But no, you've got to raise your kids to be tough. I will bet a million dollars that military uniforms for children will become big, big popular toys again. I want to see kids running around with guns going, ba 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 bang you're dead. You know, instead of putting on a dress and an earring. For 10 years, kids were told to be sensitive. You know, come to school in a dress. Not me. I grew up with a cap gun in my hand. I loved cap guns. 
I used to run around the streets in the Bronx shooting people in the streets with the cap guns. No one ever said, oh, Mrs. Savage, your son is sick. Look at that. He's aiming his cap gun at people and shooting them. What's wrong with him? Take him to a doctor. Every kid in those days, all of a sudden, every kid in those days had a cap gun. Now, all of a sudden, the 70s come along. If you gave your kid a cap gun, you were considered a psychotic. Instead, you're supposed to give him a collection of flares from the United Nations. As poor as we were, I went on to a city college, that was Queens College, and worked a few jobs. Then about 10 years later, I went on to get my doctorate at the University of California at Berkeley. Even then, I didn't get affirmation from my family. While education was considered important, they weren't quick to acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. It's astounding. They'd rather die of anthrax than give me the satisfaction of calling me up and saying, Michael, you have a doctorate from UC Berkeley. You've written books on the immune system. What do you know about anthrax? What can I, go to, what can I do to defend myself? Well, before leaving memory lane, I must tell you one of my most cherished photos is of my, is of my paternal grandparents. I never met my grandfather, you see. He died at 47. He was the one who came over. He was like the astronaut of the family to me. He's the one who left the old country, came here, worked his heart out, got the others over here, and then he dropped dead at 47. Life was hard, so we worked hard. I have no patience for the bums today whose hands are always out. You know the type. Those card-carrying victims who only know how to suck the nipple of Uncle Sam. Well, that's the beginning from the Bronx to Broadcasting in my 2002 publication, The Savage Nation. We'll continue this at another time. Thank you very much. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. Well, I have a real treat for you right now. I've had this in my archives for, for a while. It's a movie, a film, an autobiography, a biopic, whatever you want to call it. The excerpt you are about to hear is a trailer from a forthcoming video biopic about Michael Savage. Who did it? The extremely famed creator of T-Rex for Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, none other than the famous Steven Williams cinematographer. In case you missed any of that, this is not a home movie. This is not done on someone's iPhone. The sound you're about to hear comes from a forthcoming biopic about uh, yours truly, done by the famous cinematographer Stephen Williams, who is the creator of T-Rex for Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Let's listen. Boy in the basement. Okay. Hello, Michael. What are your first memories in the Bronx? A six or eight story yellow brick apartment building on Longfellow Avenue teeming with everyone knew each other. Everyone in the building knew everyone else. It was largely Jewish, but there were some Christian families. And I recall going down to one Christian family that were friends of ours for Christmas and how enchanted I was by the smell of their Christmas tree, which we weren't allowed to have and we didn't have. And we'd go in the house and it would smell of the forest. And I was shocked that in the middle of this, you know, Bronx apartment, <laughs> you smell the woods. And the girls had decorated with all of the balls and all of the tinsel. I was so wiped out by the beauty of that. That's one memory. There are certainly many others. Some are sad. That's a happy one. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. There are really sad memories as well then. Well, I don't yeah. want to get maudlin the brother thing. You know, I could go down that road. My, my poor brother. I could, that's a whole story unto itself. I'll give you one quick brother story. Uh, he was two and a half years younger than me. No one knew he was brain damaged when he was born because he was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, beautiful little child. 
And for the first year and a half, they figured he's just a kid, right? And then suddenly they realized he couldn't hear and he couldn't see. So that began the beautiful tragedy known as my uh, silent brother. But the story that I remember most was how I learned to talk to audiences, and I've said that on the show, and to animals, was through my silent brother because once they realized there was something, quote, wrong with him, he would be sat in the kitchen alone in his high chair. No one was allowed to talk to him. And they said to me, don't bother him. Don't go near him. And I was like, what? What do you mean, don't bother him? He's sitting there like... So when no one was around, I'd go up and start to talk to him. And I remember whistling to him. I knew he couldn't... So I go... And I'd see his eyes light up. So I knew he was alive. See, today... With all of the technology, he'd be one of those people in Berkeley, probably in a wheelchair, right? That's the heartbreaker because they said there's nothing there. But there was something there, like him. So I learned to <clears throat> communicate like the little guy, whistling, whatever. So then my mother said, what are you doing in there? Uh, nothing, Mom. Get out of there. Leave him alone. But so years later... He uh, must have been five. They were going to give him away to a home. This is so tragic, I can hardly tell the story. But the doctor who did this to him through some medication for my mother while she was gestating said, you have to get rid of the sick child for the sake of the healthy children. So they sent him to this snake pit in Staten Island called Wiltwick, I think. I think it was covered in the news later on. I'm talking snake pit level. So, you want a memory? Think of a Sajat Ray film. Think of, <sighs> You don't want to. No, I, I can't. <laughs> My head's just... Michael, I didn't mean that. No, no, it's an important story because you're asking, you know, how this all began. I mean, where the hell did I learn to talk to people? Right. It was wanting to talk to someone who was supposedly not hearing me. So you have to like reach inside yourself. How do you learn to film? How do you learn to paint? How do you learn to throw a ball? Something inside of you, you have to reach inside. So obviously uh, I reached inside and it brought out what was in me, but nevertheless the point is they took him away. And I remember to this day, the, the people in the streets watching him go away in this ambulance with crying and screaming and my uncle, whoa, that was some story, you know. I never saw him again. My mother, you want a story? She'd go visit him every week for the rest of his life. Every week she'd go by two, two subways and a bus to some horrible place. She'd come back white. She couldn't speak for a week. So this continues that little sad story. My mother would come home completely emotionally wrecked. What did I do? I was alone in the apartment with a sad mother. No one knew it but me because she didn't show this to the world. I entertained her. I'd make crazy faces for mommy. I would do craziest shit you could ever think of. Stand on my head, whistle, stick my fingers in my ears, in my nose to make my mother laugh. Again, what did I, I learned how to entertain. So in a way, my silent brother taught me to be who I am, an entertainer. But that's basically it. I mean, you know, that's why I can talk to animals, like this guy, who I think is a reincarnated somebody. I mean, I believe in these things. Hey, Teddy, who are you? I know he's a little boy in there, but... But on the, um, I think you wanted to talk about the sure. antiques market. Yeah, just one second. Kurt, how are we doing with our tights? Oh, it's good. Okay. I'm sorry to get so emotionally okay. raw because Michael, I didn't plan Michael, on going Michael. here. Your audience. 
Yeah, but I know I, I didn't want. You know, because not only do they know your personality already, they want to see who you are. That's what I. I know, but it's too. It's too. You don't have to include this. You can include it. I don't care. No, Someone's no. got to get it. Yeah, it's documented. That's the key point. Yeah, it's documented. Um, yeah, the thing. First, I want to ask you about your for dad. You know? Go ahead. Um, so, um, so your relationship with your father. I believe I heard you on the air the other day talking about how. You admired a lot of the families because the father was around, but you, you felt that your father wasn't around in a lot of cases. You know? Well, he was working seven days a week. He was the simple, principal breadwinner. Mom was a homemaker, and she did a great job at that. But um, he had to go to open that store seven days a week. There was no welfare. He would have killed himself before he took it anyway. No one in that neighborhood took welfare. They would rather have thrown themselves off a fire escape than taken a dime from the government. They had such pride. You know how poor people were then. No, he was in the store. I didn't think he was denying it me. He wasn't running around with women and drinking somewhere in a bar. He was working. He opened the store and tried to make a living. Or he'd go out trying to buy the, the merchandise in the mornings that he would sell in his store. So I knew he was working. I never saw it as abandonment. But he was old school, rough customer, gruff, tough life, immigrant. Came here when he was 13 from Russia. My grandfather was the immigrant who died at 49. But he brought the family over. You know, it's an immigrant story, one by one, grandmother and the kids uh, in his little tailor shop. I have a picture of him. We call him, Janet actually calls my grandfather, who we never met. I never met him, the astronaut of the family. Just think about what that was. I mean, it's like, look at this immigrant experience today. People say, oh, you're anti-immigrant. Well, I'm the son of an immigrant. That's number one. The difference is when the Statue of Liberty, 1904, or Emma Lazarus statement, give us your tired, your poor, and those yearning to be free. That's a great statement. But the fact of the matter is there was no welfare state waiting for them. They came here to break their asses and work in the, in the factories, the coal mines, the steel mills. That's what the... So in other words, there's a little bit of a double talk and cynicism here. It wasn't welcoming immigrants to give them a free ride as we are doing today. It was welcoming immigrants to be the laborers for the industrialization of America and the post-industrialization, which were the factories. New York, garment center. You'd have 16 immigrants to a room, Italian or Polish or Jewish in their neighborhoods. And they all worked. They went out looking for work. But they were the worker bees, right? Some of them worked their way out. Some of them built themselves up. They moved to a better apartment in the Bronx. They'd work their way out of the Lower East Side, which is so cool right now. That's like the hot neighborhood. You go down there, you see the bars and the restaurants and the hipsters. I remember going there a few years ago with the, my family. We got there about two in the morning and it was a summer night and it was shocking. The street, which there's a picture of there, the store, which was a dump. I mean, when I was a kid, it was a slum. All of a sudden, it's all bars and all, you know, smoking cigarettes two o'clock in the morning coming out of the bars. That's the way of the world, right? Things change. So that... That was your world. Yeah, there was the antique store. There was the Katz's Delicatessen on Ludlow Street. There was this terrible, ugly, dirty luncheon at a dairy restaurant. Here's a great father story. My father would try to toughen me up, so he'd make me go in the streets alone as a little kid to get the food. And I was a little afraid, but he said, just go there and get the food. So I went down to the luncheonette. There was a nasty son of a bitch ran it. He hated everybody, even kids. He hated everybody. He's the type with Kit Kats. So I'd say, can I have a tuna fish sandwich and a coffee to go, please? And he'd make the sandwich. And, you know, I brought it to my father. My father opens the sandwich up. And there was something in it that was like a hair or some crap in it. I don't know what. My father freaked out, opens the stand up, flips the board open. 
grabs me by the hand, goes back to the luncheonette guy. You gave this to my kid? Look what's in this goddamn sandwich. There's some hair in the goddamn thing. So the guy says, so what are you arguing about? I didn't charge any extra for it. I mean, that was the kind, the kind of stuff that, that I remember. It was funny in its own way, you know. But all right, so that was that. But the real thing of the boy in the basement, which is, I think, where you want to go, Steve. I was just going to say, you know, what, what was your first job that you had? Oh, you want me to go back into that basement? Well, my father didn't want me to become soft. So his way of toughening me up was not to send me to learn uh, jujitsu or boxing, which, by the way, I tried to learn through an uncle who knew a light heavyweight black guy. I'll tell you that story another day. I almost got killed going to Harlem. This little skinny Jewish kid. Uh, that's a great story. No, let's go back to that for a minute. My father didn't want me to be a weakling. So he says, you're going to go to work with me every Saturday. I said, Dad, that's my day off. My friends are riding their bikes. He said, well, your days of riding your bike and flying kites are over. You're going to work Saturdays with me. So I remember those grim, horrible days of, of you know, I had to get into the DeSoto with the roof rack, that ride from Queens <laughs> over the Williamsburg, through the Kosciuszko uh, bridge, the smell of the Truns meat factory. I can smell it to this day in the summer. You could literally die in the car. It was, the, you know, they were, they were rendering the fat, killing the pigs. And you could smell it. I mean, your eyes would tear. Your nose would go out. There was no control over anything then. It was like a wild, over the bridge, over the Williamsburg Bridge, into Manhattan, into the store. And he, he didn't just put me there as a little salesman. He needed good, cheap labor. What's he going to use me for? He put me downstairs, not in the store level, in the basement. And that's where I worked for many a year. And I mean, he paid me, don't get me wrong, he paid me. <laughs> but what I did was I worked with Cyanide Solution. That's a great story unto itself. He had big barrels of white, round, chemical cyanide things. And you'd mix a certain number of them in water, which would make a cyanide solution, which I would use to take the patina off bronzes to strip them, in other words, of this beautiful patina to make them look brassy because the Nouveau Riche were buying the bronzes didn't appreciate the patina. They thought it was dirt. So they wanted the bronzes to look shiny to turn them into lamps. What did I know? As my father made a living. If he paid uh, $50 for one in a wholesaler, he'd sell it for 80 or 90. That was his bread. All right, so I'd be down there all day long doing this shit. My eyes would, my face would turn red. My eyes would tear, and I'd look at them as I got older. I became a teenager. I was still doing this shit. I remember looking in the mirror with a ducktail haircut. I was going to go on a date maybe that night, and I'd like, you know, look at myself in the mirror, and my face was like <laughs> red from it. You know, I said, what the hell? I didn't even ask what I was doing there. I was working. I never questioned it. My other friends thought it was crazy, right? I'll tell you more about it in a minute because there's barrels in there I have to talk about. The wine barrels, the, the round wooden casks with the old the empty of wine because across the street was a, a kosher wine store and they, they had the wine in these huge barrels and the barrels were bought by my father and the other guys in the market to put junk in. Well, as I was cleaning the bronzes, I get bored and I noticed these barrels around this basement filled with like notes and pads and photographs. So I said to my dad, well, what is this? He says, well, you know, we buy these trunks, steamer trunks that come in from Europe that people don't claim. And we buy them sight unseen, they're unopened, we pay a certain amount per, per, per uh, suitcase, what is it, not suitcase, trunk, steamer trunk. 
Because if they had been open, no one would bid on them because they, all the good stuff would have been taken out of them. So they bid whatever it was, I don't know. And they would hope inside would be something of value that they could sell upstairs in the store. What was of no value to them was the stuff they threw in these barrels. In other words, the soul of the person who owned that trunk, the manuscripts, the photographs, I've told you about this. This is, so I as a kid would gravitate to the barrels and rifle through them and get stuck reading stuff and looking at journals and looking at musical scores and pictures. And then you would see, you'd see the guy going off from the west side on the pier on the ship going to Europe, wearing his nice suit and tie, waving, optimistic, leaving for Europe to become a famous composer or writer. Then there may be some few more pictures of him somewhere in Paris, looking a little more downbeat, and then it would be over. So apparently he went there, failed, came back, or God knows, died there and then shipped us, I don't know, maybe friends. So I would find that stuff, and again, my father, <laughs> I could hear his voice this day, Michael, what are you doing down there? Are you working or what? Yeah, yeah, I'm working, Dad. Being like a brush back to cleaning the bronze, you know, toothbrush, cyanide solution. One day, now the only other person who would do this was a bum from the Bowery, Louis. Great character, love him, I wrote about him. Now try to picture Louis. Louis was this bimmy, Bowery bum, alcoholic. Skinny as a rail, some tattoos, uh, never ate, all he did was drink and whistle in the bar at night. He'd go to Hamelin Corn with whatever money he made for my father, cleaning bronzes, no one else would do it. We wore rubber aprons. He took the few dollars, he'd go in the bar, he'd buy everyone drinks all night till he had nothing left in his pocket, and then he would stumble home. That's, that's Louis. Louis and the monkey, that's a separate story. Louis got lonely, Louis bought a woolly monkey. He didn't buy, he didn't buy a, a spindly little monkey. What he bought was a woolly monkey, a, one of those dark black ones. Took it home to his little shit house over there in Williamsburg, which today is a hip neighborhood. You know, and he lived with the monkey. He used to come in with it and talk about how much he loved it. One day, we heard Louis was not coming and he was in Bellevue Hospital. Well, what happened? The monkey went ape on him, tried to kill him, tore his face open. Louis got into a life fight with this monkey. <laughs> Louis was a tough guy, you know, being like an alcoholic. These guys are usually very wiry. Apparently, bashed the monkey's head and threw him out of the window. <laughs> that was Louis and the monkey. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Well, as promised, we are going to have calls on this Savage Nation podcast in 2021. It's a revolutionary step for most podcasts. And we'll be doing this on Monday, January 4th, when we kick officially kick off the new year. Today we are kicking off the new year, but it's a warm-up for the real new year. And you've got enough material today. And how do you call into the show? All you do is go to a website, which we're going to post on michaelsavage.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And it will be a link that you go to, a website. And the minute you click on that link, it puts you into a waiting room. It'll tell you what time to do this so you don't wait too long. And you'll be talking to me one after the other in the order in which you come in. So please look to michaelsavage.com, Twitter, Facebook accounts, Instagram on Monday morning, where you can see how to get into the Savage Nation caller waiting room. I'll see you then. This has been the first special edition of the 1121 Savage Nation podcast. I hope you've enjoyed all of the variety we have put into the program today. And uh, on Monday, the 4th, we'll have another special edition of the Savage Nation podcast. I hope you'll be with us. Again, thank you very much for listening. Bye now. Bye now.